Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and head on over to Leviticus chapter 10. This is the first time that I am not either preaching solely to a video camera or doing this twice on a Sunday morning. And so I am thankful for that. But as I was talking to someone on the way in, it means I need to bring my A-game. This better be a good one this morning. We're all here together, so i got to do my best. Pressure's on. Leviticus chapter 10. This falls directly after, and I believe on the same day as Leviticus chapter 9. And so last week we left on a high note They have done all that the Lord commanded, it says, and God's presence shows up in a mighty way, evidenced tangibly by the fire of the Lord coming out of the tent of meeting and consuming the sacrifice. And yet we come to chapter 10, and on that same day, I believe, two of the sons of Aaron are judged because of their sin. And so before we read part of our passage this morning, I think it would be safe to say that leadership has fallen on hard times. Trust in leadership is perhaps at an all-time low. It is believed by many that the only reason people aspire to leadership is to use that position of leadership and authority for their own benefit. Leadership is largely viewed as self-serving. It's for monetary gain, career advancement, reputation building. And so, those that are coaches are oftentimes viewed as untrustworthy, They may be exploiting those that are under their care, or when some things come to light that are evil, they may look the other way and turn a blind eye to protect the reputation of themselves and the team or institution that they are working for. Our politicians are viewed largely as untrustworthy. They are only in it for themselves, by and large, seems to be the prevailing thought They really do not care for the people that they are supposedly called to represent and to govern. And certainly, although it has always been the case that celebrity uh, Christian leaders have fallen, it seems in the last little while that that is even more prevalent. Individuals and ministries that we have listened to, downloaded podcasts from, read books written by, have been shown to participate in acts of great evil for their own benefit. And so we come now this morning to this reality of leadership and what happens when leadership fails and the judgment of God that ensues. So Leviticus chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. I believe those are the key verses for this passage. But there is much more that is here. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons, with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, 
and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This is the word of God. On the same day that the priesthood is actualized, the first day that they are doing all of the things that they have been preparing to do, two of them are judged by God for blatant disobedience. And so in the first place this morning, we see in verses 1 through 3a, what happens when leaders fail? What happens when those who are called to demonstrate to everyone who God is fail to do so? What happens when those who are supposed to be the closest representation of the character of God give a false representation thereof? What happens when leaders fail? And so it says in verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the two older sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Two things here, I think, this morning. First of all, failure immediately follows success. A week, a week of consecrating themselves, a week of offering the offerings, a week of anointing with the oils, a week of doing everything as the Lord had commanded them. And then on the eighth day, as we saw, the sacrifices in the proper order and offered the proper way had all been done. And God's fire comes out and consumes the offering on the bronze altar. God's presence shows up. And later on that same day, Nadab and Abihu, in direct disobedience, this is flagrant disobedience. This is not an oopsie. This is not an unintentional sin covered by the guilt offering. This is a flagrant disobedience towards God. We do not know exactly what it was. We'll look at that in just a moment. But on the same day that God's presence is revealed to the people, Nadab and Abihu lead uh, as leaders sin against God. I think this should give us pause. When we are experiencing God's blessing, we need to be grateful for that. We need to be careful that we do not let our guard down. We notice God creates everything and says that it is good. Places Adam and Eve in the garden and says that it is all very good. And shortly thereafter, it all goes very, very bad. Here at the inauguration of the priesthood and the celebration of the beginning of God's presence to be in the midst of his people, it all goes wrong very quickly. And in the early church, shortly after the church had formed, there are thousands of people believing on Jesus Christ, the resurrected Messiah. Thousands of people from around the globe and certainly in the city of Jerusalem are coming to faith in Christ. Things are happening. Healings are continuing. All of this is going on. And then two individuals decide that they're going to try to get all the glory without any of the sacrifice or without a full sacrifice. They lie and they are struck dead by God. And that certainly rocks the early church. Everything was heading in this direction. We got complacent. And God's judgment shows up. We serve a holy and righteous God. And so we need to be careful because failure here follows immediately on the heels of success. 
Notice in the second place then, under this first point, there is a failure to obey. The only key we have from the text grammatically is that the fire that they offered before the Lord was unauthorized. Some English versions may say strange or foreign fire. If you want to know the 12, 15 to 50 different postulations about what exactly Nadab and Abihu did, you'll have to stick around from 11 till 12 for the Q&A time following the service, and we'll get into more of the details there. My best guess for what they did is they offered fire not from the fire that God had himself uh, put upon the bronze altar. This fire from God that had come out and burned up the offering on the bronze altar, Nadab and Abihu specifically and deliberately and without warrant get embers, get fire from a different source, a a non-God sourced fire, and use that to attempt to offer incense before God. The implications of that are not known from the text. Did they believe that they now had a position of authority a blessing from God, and therefore they didn't have to follow the rules? Was it pride and arrogance that tripped them up? Did they believe that they could offer things on their own, that they were not representatives of God, but they themselves stood in the place of God? Is that what is going on here? We're not told from the text. All we know is that this is a serious violation of the holiness of God. Coming from the two, two of the individuals that were to stand in the presence of God, representing the people of God to God, showing his character and following his laws. And they deliberately and blatantly disobey. What happens? Verse 2, God's swift judgment fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Nothing puts a damper on a celebration like sudden death. So these two sons of Aaron are presumptuous, perhaps, and God shows up and judges them swiftly. Now there's a part of this that I think we're not okay with. Maybe not publicly, like we doubt that God knows what he's doing, but as we read this passage, there may be a bit of us that says, seems a little much, doesn't it? Seems a little harsh. They're all dressed up in their fancy clothes. After all, they have done this, what they're supposed to do, at least the week before. Like, doesn't seem quite right, does it? And I think that happens because, A, we have a higher view of ourselves than we ought to have, and B, because we have a lower view of God than we ought to have. We don't believe that we are actually as sinful as God's word tells us that we are, and we do not actually believe that God is as holy as he says that he is. We quite enjoy it when God judges the people that we want him to. We're not such fans of his judgment of us. Because, after all, the things that we do wrong, well, that's not really that bad. But that person, well, God, please, they need judgment swiftly. We are radically inconsistent in our view of ourselves and of God. God sets the tone early. The same fire that blesses the people also judges the two sons of Aaron. Same fire. 
Our God is a consuming fire. It is an infinite, indescribable blessing to be in his presence. But it is also a weighty and fearful thing to be in his presence and for his presence to be in us. It is not something to trivialize and to take lightly as the sons of Aaron did. And so we notice in the first part of verse 3 then that leaders are held to a higher standard. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. Two things here. Those that are the closest to God, those that are representatives of God, are held to a higher standard, something we will re-explore in just a moment. And also, if the leaders before God fail, then so will the people. And so God says, before all the people, I will be glorified. There is no bias in God. There's no special treatment in the economy of God. Just because you are called into his service does not mean that you will not experience his judgment if and when you sin. And so we need to keep that in mind as well. Second place, then, what is the aftermath? Really, the first seven verses could be the whole thing, but I think we put it together in two separate points because there is fallout. There is always fallout when leaders fail because individuals look up to them. Again, they buy their material. They listen to their podcasts. They follow them, and then when leaders fail, it has a ripple effect. And notice some of the fallout there. In verse 3, the part that we did not mention, it says that Aaron held his peace. Some versions may say Aaron was silent, but I think this way of rendering it is one of the better ones. Aaron had lots he wanted to say. He just didn't say it. What is Aaron's response then? We see shock, grief, and silent resignation. It's one thing to see a leader fail and to see the repercussions thereof. It's another thing when it's your two boys. And Aaron was there. He was inside of the tabernacle complex. He was close. And those two corpses are his two oldest sons. But his commitment to God rises above his commitment to his boys. There's something profound there. It is the same commitment that Jesus calls us to as his disciples. Because as anyone that has not left father and mother, brothers and sisters, cannot be my disciple. Our commitment to God must be the, the deepest commitments, the highest commitments, and Aaron's is. Notice there is a public example in verses 4 and 5. There are now two corpses in the temple complex, the tabernacle complex. Death has come in the place that is to scream life. So what to do? The priests cannot touch the dead bodies, even though they are their sons and their brothers, because they will become unclean and defiled thereby. And so Moses enlists the help of some of their cousins, cousins of Aaron and cousins of Nadab and Abihu. They come in and carry the dead bodies out. And notice all of the congregation of Israel is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so when these two dead bodies come out, everybody would have seen them. There is a public reality to leader failure in a different way than when just 
anybody sins or fails. Every failure has consequences. But when a leader fails, there are public consequences because leadership is a public endeavor. Notice though, in those same verses, there is a recommitment uh, to the holiness of God. I don't know how Aaron felt. It doesn't tell us in the text. But as a father, I can imagine a little bit what I would want to do if my two sons were lying there dead. I want to rush in. But Aaron does not, because again, his commitment is to the Lord before it is to his sons, as hard as that is. Same with the two younger sons of Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar. They do not rush in to help their brothers. And so there is an understanding that because of the role that Nahab and Abihu hold, it is a higher position. Therefore, there are deeper consequences, and there is on the other priests the reality of the holiness of God that they must maintain in a way that Nadab and Abihu did not. And notice a reorientation to God's glory. Moses reminds Aaron and Aaron's two youngest sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, verse 6, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. They were not to publicly have any marks of mourning. Primarily because, as the priests of God, the anointing oil of God was still on them, and they needed, as the representatives of the people before God, to display God and His character but also because to mourn in this moment could be perceived as some compassion for those that had been judged by God. And God needed it to be very clear that not even Aaron and the two younger brothers had any sympathy for the actions of their two older brothers and his two oldest sons. There was no sense that Aaron was condoning in any way, shape, or form the blatant disobedience of Nadab and Abihu. However, we notice that God is always is a gracious God, and what does it say in the back half of verse 6? But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. God is not unfeeling. There is mourning to be had. Two people have died, and died in a public and spectacular way. But those that are still in the presence of God are not to mourn. And yet the nation of Israel is to mourn and will mourn the passing. They do not mourn the sin, nor the judgment for that sin, but they mourn death, which is a continual uh, reminder of sin and its consequences. And now we come to the three verses that I believe are the three key verses of this text, which is 8 through 11. The weightiness of leadership, four verses and the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, this is the first and only time in the entire book of Leviticus that God speaks to Aaron without Moses. This is God speaking directly to Aaron. On the same day that two of his sons have been judged by God for their deliberate disobedience, they're sinning with a high hand against God. And God gives Aaron three things that I think we can break up into four realities. In the first place, in verses 8 and 9, leaders are to be clear-headed. 
No leader, no priest of Israel for the entirety of the Israelite priesthood was to be drunk. And it's clear from the text. Drunkenness clouds judgment. Drunkenness impairs discernment. And so God says to be a leader in the nation of Israel is to be clear-headed. To have all of your wits about you. You are going to teach the nation of Israel. You are going to model to the nation of Israel what it means to be uh, in the presence of God. And so to do that, you cannot have any impairment to your judgment. Notice in verse 10, I believe there are two truths, although only one reality is explicitly stated. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between, between the unclean and the clean. I think here there are two realities. The first is that leaders are to know the truth. How can you discern what is clean and what is unclean, what is holy and what is common if you do not know what is holy and what is clean? Leaders have to know the truth. And then I think in the next place, leaders need to discern the truth. And we're going to see an example of that as we close out this passage. Knowing the truth, but then applying that truth to real life situations. We know these things in principle. Now, what does that mean on the ground where I live? Leaders do that. And then in verse 11, leaders are to teach the truth. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This now is the role of the priesthood. Know the truth, teach the truth, model the truth, discern the truth, walk in the truth. This is the mantle of leadership and the weightiness thereof. And in the rest of the passage then, notice the responsibility of leadership, verses 12 through 20. Moses comes in to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar and gives them further instructions. There were things that were yet undone from the offerings that had been offered that morning. I believe, again, this takes place, I believe, on the same day as chapter 9. They present the offerings in the morning. God's fire shows up, but there are extra things that need to be done. Nadab and Abihu did not do them, and now these things need to be accomplished to complete these sacrifices. And so we see in verses 12 through 15, there needs to be full and complete obedience. Half-hearted obedience, incomplete obedience, is not what we have been called to, what the leaders have been called to. And so Moses comes in and instructs, the uh, remaining sons of Aaron and Aaron in the uh, completion of the sacrifices. But notice in the second place that leaders impact others. Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering mentioned in chapter 9. And behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? The eating of the... Uh, specific portions of the sin offering was a completion of the atonement of that offering. And Moses, again, emotions are high. Two people have just died, and they're actually Moses' nephews. Things are happening quickly, and Moses is running around trying to determine what else needs to be done, and are things being done rightly? Because clearly something was done wrong to lead to God's judgment, so let's do things rightly, shall we? And then he figures out that the goat of the sin offering, rather than the portions that were for the priests to consume, they had not been consumed, but instead all of it had been burnt up. And Moses wants to know, why was this not done? There's an impact on others when leaders fail. Notice cross-reference James 3.1. 
Brothers, do not desire for many of you to be teachers, knowing that we receive the greater responsibility, the greater condemnation. I think most people like the idea of being a leader, at least the benefits of leadership. As with many things in life, like adulthood and other things, we treat leadership like a buffet. Everybody looking up to me, I'll take some of that, heaping portion of that, that looks really good. Having to stand by decisions I make when they're unpopular, ugh, Brussels sprouts, Let's, we don't want that. <laughs> Having affirmation from a group of people, excellent, dessert, yummy, check that off. Being under the judgment of God for every word uttered in his name. Ooh. Yeah. Leaders have an impact on others. And Moses is understanding of that and wants to know why it hasn't been done correctly. But notice in verses 16 through 19, leaders disagree respectfully. Aaron says in verse 19, Behold, today they, Nadab and Abihu, have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? Nadab and Abihu had begun the process of the sin offering and the burnt offering, had not yet completed it before they went off in their own direction and directly disobeyed God. And Aaron says, if I complete their sacrifice, would that honor God? Would that not approve in some way of the sin of Nadab and Abihu? Better in this circumstance, is it not, to burn the whole sin offering? and remove the taint of Nadab and Abihu's sin completely? There's disagreement. Moses is right, and Aaron is right. What do you do when leaders disagree about things, and they both seem to have biblical warrant? You disagree respectfully and lovingly. I could have preached the entire sermon this morning on that one verse, especially given the circumstances we've walked through in the last two years. Overall, leadership has not done a stellar job of this, and neither have everyone else. Notice in the fourth place, leaders reflect God's character. Aaron is not wanting to disobey God. Aaron desires to obey God. It's not coming from a heart of selfishness. It's coming from a heart desirous of God's glory. Completely different from his two sons. And so his motivation is correct. And his application is also correct, even though not technically correct according to the commandments of God. And so what do we find then in verse 20? Leaders need grace. And when Moses heard that, he approved. There's grace before we move into our response this morning, there are at least two things that are left unsaid thus far. First of all, leadership is not something that is separate from anything else in life for which we do not require the grace of God. No one can do anything that God has called them to do unless he gives them the power and the ability to do it. 
we are all desperately in need of God's grace. All of us. All of us are sinners. Aaron, his four sons, Moses, everyone in the nation of Israel is a sinner. No one is sinless. And so all are in need of God's grace. And what we've been singing about and what we preach here every single Sunday is that grace is available. Because as we come into this week before Easter, Palm Sunday this morning, celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, the people waving the palm branches, laying them down on the coats in the road, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Israel. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus, righteous. Jesus, crucified, bearing our penalty. Jesus, risen proving that the penalty has been paid, Jesus ascended, making intercession for us. We all are in need of grace. So please, if you have heard any of this this morning and believe that any of this means that we just need to do better, you have not heard it correctly. We are all in need of the grace of God. Secondly, perhaps you've heard this this morning, and believe this only applies to a very small portion of the population. At Grace Baptist Church, the elders perhaps, and maybe the deacons, but not you. And I think if you see this passage as exclusively applying to those in the roles of leadership, you have also missed the point. In this world that is becoming increasingly more confusing, and confused in this world that is increasingly becoming more decadent and chaotic more than ever all of us who have experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and have the truth the truth of his word need to lead leadership does not look like necessarily getting up and addressing a group of people in public speaking leadership is not exclusively having a title or a position Leadership is simply sharing with those around you who God is. That's leading. And every single one of you here this morning that know him are called to that. And what happens if we fail? What happens to our neighbors and our friends and our family members if we laugh at what God calls disgusting? If we find pleasure in what God calls evil? If we advance what God says is immoral, if we turn a blind eye to what God says causes him to weep, we are all leaders. All of us who have experienced the grace of God need to take that grace into our world. And how does any of this relate to Palm Sunday? What was the very first point? Failure immediately following success. What happens less than a week after a crowd of people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. Less than a week later, a different crowd cries out, Crucify him, crucify him. All of us have a place to play, a role to play in this. And so our response, are we leading those in our sphere of influence to know Jesus? We who have experienced the grace of God, 
Are we sharing that grace with those around us? Those that so desperately need it, as do we. And if we don't, if we fail, God will certainly judge us, but that will also have implications and ramifications for those around us. Certainly the, way, the situation in our culture is the way it is because of human sin. But I think also, particularly in our culture, at least part of the blame lies at our feet. Because we have participated in, laughed at, and promoted that which God has called evil. We have not led well. And by that I do not mean we have not joined in picket lines or convoys or protests. No, in our sphere of influence... We have not shown the grace of God as we ought to, which means we ought to confess that and forsake that and lean harder into it. We need God's grace, and so does everybody that we know. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this passage before us. It is a stark reminder that your judgment falls on all who sin. There is no special place of privilege your judgment does not find. And yet, because of your grace, you poured that judgment out on your Son. That should have fell on us. We should be consumed. We should be judged in eternal flame forever. And yet, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took that on our behalf. How grateful we ought to be and how that ought to change radically how we live. May we evidence your grace and may we shine your love to everyone around us. If we fail, Father, there are consequences for that failure. As your prophet Ezekiel has said, if we share your grace and your holiness and your righteousness and your goodness and your truth with someone, and they reject it, their blood is on their own head. But if we do not, then their judgment is at least partially at our feet. We have work to do, all of us. We have been insular. We have been concerned primarily with ourselves. Father, forgive us and help us to be more focused on those around us that they might know your love and your grace and your compassion and your goodness and your truth and your gentleness and your righteousness and your holiness and your love. Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.